0: Hilary, let me say thank you on behalf of us for reading that so well. Uh, Good morning, everyone. Well, if you were with us last week, uh, as Robbie was saying, you'll know that we began a series in the book of Acts that we're calling Spirit-Filled Church. And here we are, Acts 2. uh, And we've just read about a red-letter day in the life of the church. The day of Pentecost. The day when the Spirit came. I wonder how you felt as we were listening to Hilary reading there. I think even at a distance of 2,000 years, I don't think you could fail to sense some of the dynamism, some of the energy around what's happening that day. But the question we might be asking is, well, how does that relate to us today? We maybe feel quite distant from that. We're here sitting in what I have to say is a fairly chilly church this morning, and that was so different. Well, depending on our backgrounds, all of us, I think, will probably be drawn to different parts of that story. Uh, The gift of the Holy Spirit, the speaking in tongues, the signs and wonders and visions, the powerful call at the end to repentance, and then the huge number of converts, the huge amount of church growth. But there's a danger, I think, when we read a passage like this, that we instantly jump in with all of our questions. Uh, What is tongues? What is prophecy? What is the gift of the Spirit? How could we see church growth like that? How could Christoph and Sam and Richie learn to preach like that? Maybe those are our questions, and we spend our time looking for what interests us. So before we dive into this story, I want to take a moment to share a couple of pieces of advice for how we should go about reading a story like this, and generally how we're going to look at the whole book of Acts. Last week, Christoph uh, showed us that uh, the Acts is really volume two of Luke's two-volume work. It's continuing on from the Gospel of Luke. And if you look back at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, you'll find that Luke says uh, that he is writing an account of what has happened. Or some translations say a narrative. In other words, it's a story. It's a true story, but it is a story. And I think we know how stories work. We listen to stories all the time. We read stories. We know that when you're listening to a story, you don't really want to interrupt it and sort of stop the story in mid-flow. You want to let it go somewhere. Because the story kind of picks you up and it takes you and it leaves you somewhere else. It takes you on a journey, doesn't it? And I think that's how we want to approach the book of Acts. We want to treat it like a story. It's going to take us on a journey. And so we need to be prepared to let our guard down to see wherever Luke is going to take us. And not rush in too quickly to ask our questions because we might disrupt the story. We might twist the story out of the shape that Luke has intended it to go in. Now, we are going to want to make sure that we're then learning how we fit into this story, but we need to listen to the story first. Okay, second piece of advice is to use the compass that Luke provides us for this journey. Um, It's the start of a new phase, volume two, and Luke doesn't really leave us wondering what's going to be coming up. He gives us this compass to give us our bearings in the story. Uh, So turn back with me to chapter one, verse eight, page 1092. Chapter 1 and verse 8. And if you remember, the context here is Jesus is now risen from the dead. Death is dead. Love is won. Christ has conquered. And the question now is, what's next? Where do we go from here? Here's Jesus' answer, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. And to the ends of the earth. Well, this was our memory verse that we learned last week. I won't test you on it now. But here's two things to expect, Jesus says. Here's what's coming up one, expect my spirit to come in power. And then two, expect that you are going to be sent out as my witnesses to the ends of the earth. That's what he says to his disciples. And we're being set up, as we listen to this, for a kind of a ripple effect. For something to kind of go from Jerusalem out and out and out, even to reaching us. Well, we don't really see very much of this as we look at the rest of chapter 1. Basically, the disciples go back to Jerusalem and they go and hide themselves away in an upper room. Now, we need to remember that Jerusalem was a place where they had just killed their leader for being a revolutionary. So it was probably a pretty scary place for them to be. And they take themselves off to the upper room. And they select another apostle to replace Judas. So there's now going to be 12 apostles again. But mostly, they just wait. They pray and they wait for something to happen. Well, that brings us up to chapter 2. And we're going to now look at this account of Pentecost. And we're going to try and go with the flow of this story. We're going to try and see where Luke is taking us today. Uh, We won't have time to look at every verse Uh, But what we're going to do is break it up into two main parts. Um, Firstly, what happened, verses 1 to 13. And then secondly, we're going to think about what that means, verse 14 to the end. So let's refresh our minds of how it all started. Have a look at verse 1 with me. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Okay, so it's about ten days after the events of chapter one, and it's a special day. It's the day of Pentecost. That was a Jewish feast to celebrate the harvest, and it was one of the three biggest feasts of the year when all of the Jewish people were expected to come to Jerusalem to thank God for the harvest. And so that means Jerusalem was crowded with visitors. People from all over the Mediterranean, Jewish people, had come into Jerusalem to be there for the feast. And the disciples, though, they seem a bit away from that. It says that they're in a house. Maybe they're still in that upper room. We're not sure how many of them are there. Maybe it's the 12. Probably it's a bit more than that. Luke says that the whole church at this time was 120 people in Jerusalem. But whoever's there, they all start hearing a sound like a hurricane. And I reckon with the weather that we've had this week, I probably don't need to go into lots of graphic details about about what that would have felt like. Uh, If you'd have been sitting in here uh, during this week, you'd have been worrying that uh, the roof was going to be coming off. We had Jill kind of doing a weather watch to make sure that we didn't lose any of the roof. Um, And I guess that maybe that was how they were feeling as they heard this violent wind coming from heaven. And then the flames came, tongues of fire that came and rest on each of the people in the room and then they're filled with the Spirit, Luke says. And they all start speaking in different languages. Well, I don't think you need to know the Bible very well at all to get a sense of power going on here, fire and wind. But if you have looked at some of the encounters that people have with God in the Old Testament, you'll know that fire and noise and wind are often part of the experience. And so we can quickly work out what's going on here. God is saying that he has come, He's there with these people, and it's very powerful. And with our compass, we know what's, what's happening. This is the first promise, isn't it? Jesus said that the Spirit's going to come, and here he is. The Spirit has come in a powerful new way. But Luke won't let us stop to catch our breath, to try and take all this in. Because as soon as the Spirit comes, he shifts our attention to that massive crowd outside And as they hear the sound of all the disciples speaking in these different languages, they gather and they start listening. And they're amazed to find that each one of them can hear the disciples speaking in their own language. So there's an Arabian Jew, a Jew who's gone and lived in Arabia and his family's been there for years, and he can hear a disciple speaking the wonders of God in Arabic. And then another guy next to him, well, he's a Jew, but he lives in Rome, and he can hear another disciple speaking in Italian and telling him about the wonderful salvation of God. And what's even more amazing is that the people who are speaking, the disciples, are from Galilee. They shouldn't be able to speak loads of different languages. They're from a backward part of the country. They're not cosmopolitan people. So there's this really joyful, but in some ways quite confusing scene as the Spirit comes and everyone starts speaking these different languages and people are gathering and wondering. Verse 12, amazed and perplexed, they asked each other, what does this mean? And maybe we're feeling a little bit like that too. Why does everyone start speaking these different languages? Why, when the Spirit comes, does he come in this particular way? Why does a tongue of fire come and sit on each person? It seems a bit odd, doesn't it? For the spirit, why would he want to just give everyone the ability to speak lots of languages? Well, let's keep going with the flow because Peter is standing right there and he wants to tell us. Have a look at verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Let me explain this to you, he says. Listen carefully to what I say. Well, I hope we're listening. Um, and there's, this is really, he's going to tell us what the Spirit's coming means. Um, and there's two parts to Peter's speech that we're going to have a look at. Firstly, uh, Peter starts off his speech by, by saying, look, we're not drunk, okay? It's, it's too early in the morning to, for us to be drunk. Here's what's happening, verse 16. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel verse 17. Here's Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Joel's prophecy continues, but it was fundamentally about a time when God's spirit was going to be poured out. What does that mean? Well, it wasn't that the spirit wasn't present before. He was there, but now it's going to be like there's a big bucket over my head, full of water. Imagine a massive bucket, and that bucket is going to be tipped upside down. I'd be soaked. I'd be drenched. And you know what? The water is not going to be going back in the bucket anytime soon. The Spirit has been poured out. But it wasn't just for a few people. It wasn't just for the leaders like the prophets uh, and the kings. Joel says the spirit is going to be poured out on all God's people. And he says, even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. It's interesting, actually, if you go back and look at Joel, at the original quote that that Peter is is quoting from, Peter actually references prophecy more times than Joel does in, in his original quote. So Peter's obviously got prophecy on his brain here, and we'll need to have a think About why that is. Just keep that in mind. And then finally, verse 21 what this means is that it's now the day of salvation. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And here's the thing as Peter looks around on this scene of Jewish people from all across the world coming in to listen to a group of spirit filled people uh, declare the wonders of God in all these different languages. Peter says, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. This is it. It's happening right in front of our eyes. The Spirit has been poured out on all God's people. So here's the first thing that the Spirit's coming means, Peter says. It's the last days. It's salvation time. God is gathering his people. And it's all because God is pouring out his Spirit now on all people. On all God's people. Now, I think that's really interesting because it means that whatever happened in that room with the tongues and the fire and the flames and the wind, that wasn't just a one off. There was something about it that was unique. You don't see again in the Bible the the visible fire or the sound, but there was something there that was for everyone. The day of salvation is here, it's the time of the Spirit. And he's going to come on all God's people, not just those guys in that room. So I think as we go through Acts, that gets us quite excited, doesn't it? It means the sky's the limit now, doesn't it? If the Spirit is on God's people, they could do anything. So we ought to be ready for some really exciting things to happen. Well, in a moment, we'll have a think a bit more about what this prophecy means for us. But I think we need to get back into the story first. Because Peter's still speaking and there's something else that the Spirit's coming means. And we can see that in the second half of Peter's speech. Actually, it's really the second two-thirds. It's the majority of Peter's speech, verses 22 all the way down to verse 40. And if you were to glance at verse 22, you'd see the subject of the speech. It's Jesus. It's his life, his death, his resurrection. And we don't have time to look at that closely today. But when Peter gets to the next stage of Jesus' life, he starts to tie it all together. So have a look with me at verse 33. Exalted uh, to the right hand of God, Jesus has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Can you see what Peter's saying? He's saying to that crowd look, because the Spirit has come on us, these followers of Jesus, that is proof that Jesus is alive, that he is at God's right hand, and that the Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. The Spirit is now poured out on people who follow him. Jesus, then, is Lord. That's where he's going with this sermon. And If it's not clear what's happening by now, let's have a look at verse 40. It's the summary that Luke gives us of Peter's speech. There was lots more that he said that day. With many other words, he warned them. And if you've got a more literal translation in front of you, you'll probably see that it says he testified to them. Testified to them. Well, if we're using our compass we'll know that that's a really significant word. Remember what Jesus said? He said, second promise, you will be my witnesses. And what do witnesses do? They testify. And in fact, Peter himself says, have a look at verse 32. He says, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of this fact. So what's going on is that as we're listening to Peter standing up, giving his speech to a massive crowd in a hostile part of this city. We're starting to see that, that second promise being fulfilled. The disciples are starting to become witnesses to Jesus. So that's the second thing that the Spirit's coming means. It means, firstly, the Spirit is going to be poured out on all God's people. And secondly, the, Spirit, uh, the, the disciples are going to be witnesses to Jesus. And those aren't just two separate promises. I think that's what the flow of this passage is telling us. It's not that the Spirit comes and does some amazing stuff with some tongues and then Peter gets up and he does his sermon. And those are just two different parts of what Jesus is saying. Those two promises are linked together. Think about it. Firstly, the Spirit enabled that sermon to even have any hearers. Peter would have never have attracted that crowd if the Spirit hadn't enabled them to speak in tongues, those different languages. And then secondly, the Spirit is at work in Peter's speech as well. Um, If you just have a look back to verse 14, um, when Luke says that Peter addressed the crowd, he's using a word that Luke only uses a couple of other times. And one of those times is in verse 4, where he says that all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Same word as address the crowd. So I think what Luke is saying here is that Peter's speech was an example of Spirit-filled speech. It was an example of what the Spirit had made happen when he came on the disciples. So the Spirit is making Peter into a witness. He's giving him power to speak. And that is what's going on with the Joel prophecy. Remember, Joel said that when the Spirit comes, God's people would prophesy. They would speak God's word. Well, that's what Peter's doing. That's what the disciples are doing. They're declaring the wonderful works of God in all these different languages. They're prophesying. They're bearing witness to Jesus. So here's what the flow of this passage is saying. As we follow it through, We're seeing that when the Spirit comes, he comes to give power to the church, to bear witness to Jesus. That's what the Spirit comes to do. That's the way the wind was blowing. He blows those disciples out of doors, into the crowd, into the public eye. He blows through Peter, giving him a tongue of fire so that he can speak words that will cut his hearers to the heart. And friends, that is still the way the wind is blowing. Remember, Peter showed us that what happened on Pentecost wasn't just for those guys then. There was something about it that was for all of us. Because the Spirit has been poured out on all God's people. And this is what the Spirit wants to do. He wants to make us prophesy. And in the context of the passage, that has got to mean bearing witness to Jesus at the very least. It's got to mean speaking God's words Telling people about Jesus. Well, we've got lots of questions, I'm sure. Um, But I think this is a good point to just stop now and see if there's a couple of things that we can take away today uh, to reflect on as we go home. So I've got two things. Um, The first thing is, I think this passage, this story is showing us that a spirit-filled church bears witness to Jesus. A spirit-filled church bears witness to Jesus. Now I think that's interesting, because sometimes the way we talk, um, we sometimes talk like the sign of a Spirit-filled church is one that talks a lot about the Spirit, uh, or that does a lot of signs and wonders. You sometimes hear people say, don't you, oh, they're really into the Spirit. And we kind of have a certain set of things that we expect goes along with that. So I think it's helpful to see today that when the Spirit comes, he didn't spend a lot of time talking about himself. And there's not really time to sit and sort of the disciples don't get to sit and think, oh, what's this that's happened to us? After four verses, the focus shifts to going outside, to the crowd, to the response, to the bearing witness. He thrusts these guys out to go and talk about Jesus when he fills them. And so if the Spirit is at work here, and I I trust that he is, then I think he'll be making us all speak about Jesus more will be like those disciples, declaring the wonders of God. And I don't think that is to dishonour the Holy Spirit at all. He's God among us. But we respect him when we try and follow the way that he is leading us, the way he's pointing. And we've seen this morning that he is blowing us towards Jesus and then out into the world to bear witness to him. That's what the Spirit wants to do. He's come to empower us to witness to Jesus. Well, it's interesting, I think, that we're talking about this after we did that big season of Jesus Rediscovered in the autumn. I kind of thought, to be honest, we would maybe not be talking about evangelism so much at the start of this year, uh, which was pretty stupid, given that we chose to preach on the book of Acts. But anyway, um, but I wonder how you felt after Jesus Rediscovered. I think, on the whole, it was an encouraging time for us as a church family. There were lots of guests, quite a few guests here every week. Uh, I know lots of people were having uh, encouraging conversations with people. Uh, A number of the cards that we asked you to fill in, people said that they'd made a step forward in being a more committed follower of Jesus. So that's really exciting. But I wonder if individually, most of us probably feel like revival, the spirit coming, didn't really happen among our friends and our family. Probably feel like not much happened, to be fair. But I believe that the Spirit was at work in us then. And the reason I believe that is because I know that lots of us took new steps to try and bear witness to Jesus. He was blowing us out into the world. Uh, Lots of us were inviting friends to services or or trying to have conversations with our friends um, or trying to give people a book uh, or offering to pray for our friends. And we have to leave the results to him, don't we? He's the one with the power. We can't do that ourselves. But I hope we can see that if we've been finding an increased desire to want to bear witness to Jesus, then that is a sign that the Spirit is filling us, that he's at work in us. I hope we're encouraged that he is here. Okay, second thing to take away this morning. Second thing that I think we might might like to reflect on is this. A spirit-filled church has got spirit-filled members. Now you might be thinking, okay, that is totally obvious. Obviously if the spirit is filling the church, he's filling the people in the church. But I think it's worth stressing because my impression is that a lot of us don't have a feeling that we're very special. We've got a very low view of ourselves as Christians. If you caught us on a good day, we might say, Yeah, I, well, I kind of am a Christian. You know, I think I just about make the grade. But we would probably never dare to say that we've got the Spirit of Jesus living in us. And so I want you to just go back into the passage, just to look at the end of the passage, the conclusion, really, to Peter's speech, verse 38. Here's how he, here's the sort of offer that he makes. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you. Turn back to God, uh, trusting in what Jesus has done, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. All whom the Lord our God will call to himself. The promise of the Spirit is for all of us, for every single one of us, men and women, young and old. There's no one that the gift of the Holy Spirit is not for. If we've turned back to God, trusting in Jesus, then we have the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we might not feel like we are the most uh, knowledgeable Christian in our discipleship group. Uh, we might be maybe feeling like we're becoming less clear. We're more forgetful than we used to be. Uh, we might not feel like we have the ability to speak very well to people. And the Spirit does give us all different gifts. That's fine. He will gift us in different ways. And Peter's gift there, was, there was something unique about that. But there was something about it that was for all of us. The Spirit has been poured out on all God's servants. All of us have got a fiery tongue all of us have been given the ability to prophesy men and women young and old all of us can bear witness to Jesus well the spirit is blowing in us he's empowering us he's sending us out into the world to bear witness for him to friends, to family to people in church and out who knows where the spirit is taking us But I hope we can see the way that he's going. Servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Father God, we praise you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Thank you that he has been poured out even on us. So give us power through him to bear witness to your son. Help us to speak of Jesus to share Jesus, to live for Jesus, even to the very end of the age. In his name we pray. Amen.